The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. So this morning we're in 2 Timothy 3. And what we're doing this morning is we're continuing our series on Sola Scriptura. As I mentioned two weeks ago, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this October. Uh, the, the, the day traditionally that's held is the day Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church in Germany. And as I mentioned last time, he wasn't trying to start a Reformation. He wasn't trying to start Protestantism. It was like on a forum board, he listed 95 thoughts for discussion in the academic community in the Roman Church. And well, those 95 thoughts, those theses, and the discussion that ensued after that led to the Protestant Reformation. And one of the, the key foundations of the Protestant Reformation were these five solas. Sola in Latin means alone, and so you have sola scriptura, scripture alone, is what in, commands belief in action. You have Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola Christus, in Christ alone. And then soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so those five solas were part of the foundation of this Reformation movement. And it was really a Reformation of the church away from a lot of accretions that had happened over the hundreds of years in the medieval Roman church that led to a gospel that was grace plus works, not grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon the Word of God alone. And so what we're doing is we're doing an eight-week series on sola scriptura. Last time I looked at Psalm 19 and the revelation of Scripture, that God's revelation to us is a great and precious gift. He reveals Himself to us in the creation. But Romans 1 tells us the creation isn't enough to save us, it's only enough to condemn us because God's attributes, His power, His might, His holiness, His righteousness is seen, but we don't see grace in creation. I mean, we can see it through the Christian lens as we now are saved. We can look at creation and see God's grace, but in and of itself, it doesn't reveal the gospel, it doesn't reveal grace, and so the Word of God is necessary to reveal this gospel. The Word of God is necessary to reveal to us that God so loved the world He gave His Son to be our substitute so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And this is a great and a precious gift. And this week we're looking at this reality of the God-breathed Word. Now this passage in 2 Timothy, this is very familiar to, to many of you, and I'm sure in this room there's, there's various uh, spectrums of experience. You might have those of you who grew up as church kids, who know the Bible in and out, you've been through Awana, you got your Timothy Award, this was the first verse you memorized probably was 2 Timothy 3.16, or maybe the second after John 3.16. And then you have others who, maybe you've never even opened a Bible you're here today and you've never even opened a Bible. Well, my experience, I was a church kid. I grew up in church. I grew up, uh, we were in post 550 building in Vallejo on Admiral Callahan Lane and I grew up counting tiles on the ceiling because uh, I was bored in church. 
I grew up, you know, getting excited about Bible memorization programs. We didn't have Awana at that time, but I went to a Christian elementary school in the second half of my elementary school, and I wanted to win that Bible memorization competition. I remember growing up enjoying the lyrics of songs more than the Bible preaching. I thought the preaching time was boring, and I don't understand what that guy's saying. He ended up being my uncle-in-law, but I didn't understand what he was saying at the time. But I loved the music. I loved the lyrics of the songs. In fact, the way I thought of the Bible, more, I thought it more of like a lucky rabbit's foot. It was like a lucky, a lucky charm, I suppose. And, and I think some of the reason was the Christian school I was going to, uh, they had some... Uh, they were King James only. They had ideas about the English Bible that made me feel like it was sort of a, man, I had to really treat it special, like a, like a, a, a charm, right? I mean, if I just held this thing, I might get holy. And uh, what I came to learn, of course, is that that doesn't happen. You don't get it by osmosis. I think my dad might have hit me upside the head with it once or twice, but, and I might have learned something from that. But what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy 3.16 is he is talking about the preciousness of this word. And he has in mind for Timothy, remember, 2 Timothy is Paul telling it's his last letter, it's the dying words, it's the last words of a man who knows he's going to go be executed. Uh, Tradition tells us he was beheaded in Rome. As a Christian, he was a, a citizen of Rome, and so that makes sense that he was beheaded, and he knew he was in prison, and his departure was soon. He tells us that in the letter, and so he's writing his last words to his dearest disciple, Timothy, and he's telling him, listen, this is what you need to remember. You need to remember these things. And, and imagine Timothy reading this. He knows that Paul's going to die. He had visited him in prison. He's trying to visit him one more time just so he could see him one more time before he dies, these words would have been words that Timothy would have memorized the first time he heard them. He would have thought about it. It's My kids have this amazing way to memorize movie movie lines the first time. We went and saw Lego Batman last year, and coming out of the movie theater, my boys were quoting lines, and I was like, how in the world do you do that? Well, to them, it was remarkable. It was memorable. It was funny. It is pretty funny. And... Here, Timothy, though, it's precious to him, right? He's getting these words from his dear discipler, Paul, who's going to die. And Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3. Let me read this passage to you that we're going to be in this morning. I'm going to start in verse 10 just so you get the paragraph. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a thought. Paul says, listen, Timothy, 
Don't let my death, don't let my persecutions, don't let the future fears that you might too be persecuted and die for the faith, don't let that cause you to depart the faith. Continue, verse 14, in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So the first thing Paul tells Timothy, one of the the implications of this God-breathed word is that you need to continue in the gospel. Continue in the gospel, verse 14. Continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believed. What he learned and embraced as true and reliable, as trustworthy, as sufficient. And these are words I know I say all the time, but if you believe the Word of God is from God, you believe that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. And when you believe that when Scripture speaks, God speaks, you know you can trust what the Bible says. Because you know it's coming from someone who's trustworthy. You ever had someone say something to you that you can't trust them? They've broken their word too many times and they make promises and they tell you things. I mean, perhaps it was a parent that you grew up with. And how hard it is to be cynical and untrustworthy of your own parent. But here we have a God in heaven who's perfect, who loves us, whose words are true and trustworthy. And not only that, it's sufficient. It's everything that we need. We heard it in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through knowledge of him who called us into his own glory, into his own, who called us into his own kingdom by his own glory and goodness. This, this knowledge that we have of Christ, this is what Timothy learned, and we know from earlier in, in the book, or actually in, in 1 Timothy, the first letter, that he learned it from his mother and grandmother. And it's able to make him wise unto salvation. It's trustworthy. And so Paul says, continue in it. And this word continue, and this word meno, it's the idea of abiding. It's what Jesus says in John 8, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. It demands more than just continuing in intellectual assent and head knowledge in orthodoxy and right thinking. It's a commitment to live and remain in what he learned from Paul, which is the gospel. Growing up in the church as a church kid, I have a number of friends I grew up with that have wandered away from the faith. One of my roommates in college wandered away from the faith after college. He, he, when I was a roommate with him, man, he seemed so devout. I would go by his room and I would feel guilty because I would hear him praying. And he would be praying with tears and he'd be in there for hours and I would think, man, my prayer life is not like that. And then come to find out it was because he had no peace and he had no rest in Christ and he wandered away because he was trying to do it all in his own strength. And I even have some friends that have returned after they abandoned the faith, as it were. They grew up in church. They hadn't really put their faith in Christ. They walked away. But then they came back and God in His grace saved them. And now they have regrets. They have regrets because in college they partied and they drank and they caroused and they did all of those things that the world does. Or perhaps they made a mess of their life and they, they, they have had decisions that basically have left them with long-term regrets. I don't know anyone who's continued in the faith in what they've learned that has regrets. I mean, isn't that incredible to think about life without regret? I never have regret when I obey the Lord. I never have regret when I believe God's word and I obey him and I do what he says, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. 
I don't have regrets over that. My regrets are when I decide I'm going to be king in my life and I'm going to be boss and I'm going to do my own thing and go my own way and I'm going to listen not to God's words but other people's words. And then I fall flat on my face. And then I have regrets. Paul tells Timothy, continue in what you've learned and what you have firmly believed. You've firmly believed it. This isn't just a sort of, yeah, I'm hedging my bets. I'm putting money on all black and red. I'm putting it on everything and then hopefully I won't lose. No, Timothy had cast all of his faith, all of his trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. He had firmly believed in him. And then he says, from whom you learned it. Now Paul here is saying, listen, I'm not just teaching man's wisdom. I'm not just giving you advice as if I'm just one, one, one teacher with the corner on truth and I have my way of doing it. He says, no, the very next verses, all scripture is God breathed. Paul received revelation from the Lord Jesus directly, Galatians tells us. He received it his training directly from the Lord Jesus, and now he's taught Timothy. In fact, he had said, look over to chapter 2, verse 2. Actually, start in verse 1 to get the beginning of the paragraph. You then, my child, he's talking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Jesus, by Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me, this is what I want you to see, verse 2, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, Paul's not teaching merely oral tradition. He's teaching the scriptures. He's teaching what he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the legacy of discipleship that we desire. Here in verse 2 of chapter 2, there's four generations. There's Paul, Paul teaching Timothy, T- Timothy entrusting it to faithful men who then will be able to entrust it to others. And this is what we desire to do. We desire to make disciples And teenagers, kids, can I talk to you for a second? You're not the future of the church. You are the church. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him, you are a part of the church of the living God. And you have a mission to make disciples and to share the good news. And the glorious thing about this is this kind of thing happens in the context of generational community. It happens when older people can walk with younger people and teach them. To obey everything Jesus commanded, fulfilling Matthew 28. And so this is what Paul says. This is what the Word of God is able to do. And so this is, Paul says, you learned it from me. Now, now this idea that the Word of God is trustworthy and that we're to continue in this gospel. I want to turn over to 2 Peter 1 that Ryan read this morning. And I want to show you that Peter says the scriptures are more trustworthy than even his eyewitness testimony. This is really remarkable. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Peter, an eyewitness of the glory of the Lord Jesus, he walked with him for three years. He He was the first among equals of all the apostles. He was the one who was the leader among the twelve. And Peter writes this, and he says in verse 16, hey, I want to tell you something. He's writing to these churches that are scattered abroad, and he says, I want to tell you something. I didn't follow a cleverly devised myth when I made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't a fiction author who's made the New York Times bestseller who's written a really tight story with a really clever world. 
It's not Lord of the Rings and Tolkien. It's not Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. This isn't a cleverly devised myth that might be true because everything hinges together so well. He says, I didn't do that when I made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I saw it with my own eyes. Then he goes on to say, For when he, the Lord Jesus that is, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice of the Father was born to him by the majestic glory, and when the Father said to the Son, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, verse 18, We ourselves, we heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with Jesus on the holy mountain. We were there with him. Peter says, I tried to build, I tried to build uh, little booths so we could just live up there forever because it was really cool. Moses was there. Elijah was there. Jesus was there. All my heroes were there, Peter says. I want to just build some houses. I mean, after all, Jesus was a carpenter. He could just, let's put them up. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, look at what he says in in verse 19. This is, what I want you to get at is, we know that Peter's eyewitness testimony was true. It's reliable. He was there. He saw it. It's confirmed by others who were there, James and John, and saw Jesus and heard the voice. But what he says in verse 19 is, we have the prophetic word, that is the scriptures, that are made more sure. They're more fully confirmed. What does he mean by that? They're more sure, more confirmed than even Peter's eyewitness testimony. Why is that? Because they're the word of God. And scripture tells us that no man spoke Actually, it's right here in verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. The the Word of God is inspired. The Holy Spirit carried along these men to produce this miracle of the Word of God so that it's it's exactly what Peter in 2 Peter wanted to write. It's exactly what Paul in 2 Timothy wanted to write. But it's also exactly what the Spirit of God wrote. And so it's the words of God and the words of men. That'll blow your mind, won't it? And so Peter here says, the Word of God is more trustworthy. It's more sufficient than even my eyewitness testimony. Now, this is really important because we are so prone to base, um, sometimes base our decisions and our actions in life upon experiences and feelings. Now, if we take Peter's example, his experience was true. He was on the mountain with Jesus. He heard the voice of God from heaven. It was a real experience and it was true. But Peter says there's something that's more sure, more trustworthy, more certain than even my eyewitness experience. It's the word of God. And that's why we say over and over, the wisdom is to filter your experience and, and, and before you make any decisions, filter it through the lens of the word of God so that you know that you're going to be doing God's will. You're going to be obeying him. You're going to be glorifying the Lord in whatever you do. So we're to continue in the word work to continue in the gospel. Back to Second to Timothy chapter 3. Why are we to continue? 
Paul says we're to continue in it. Well, why are we to do this? Verse 15, its purpose is to make you wise for salvation. Verse 15, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the Scriptures is to make you wise and make you wise in a specific way. Make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. See, the Old Testament pointed to Christ. From Genesis 3.15, This seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 12, as God the Father promises to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed again. In in Genesis 15, when the covenant is made, even after the exodus, after the rebellion at Sinai. And Israel had a great problem, didn't they? They were stiff-necked and they were rebellious. And God tells them, you need to circumcise your hearts. But he knows they can't do it in their own strength. And so in Deuteronomy 29, he says he's going to circumcise their hearts for them. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 10. God must be the one who gives the circumcision of the heart. And when is this going to happen? When is this going to come about? Well, throughout the Old Testament prophets, there was this Messiah who's going to come. And when He comes, He's going to be a descendant of David. And He's going to make this happen because He's going to bring in a new covenant. And the Spirit of God isn't just going to be with His people. He's going to be in His people. And everyone's going to know the Lord, Jeremiah 31 says, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And what happens? Jesus comes. And He has that conversation with Nicodemus the religious leader of Israel, and he says, you must be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, what is that? How can someone be born again? You can't go back into your mom's belly and be born again. And he says, no, what's born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. He says, you must be born of the spirit. You must have a new heart. You must have regeneration. The Spirit of God living inside of you and Jesus says this is what's going to happen but first He has to go and be crucified and die as our substitute so that we could be forgiven and then He's ascended and He pours out the Spirit and we see it at Pentecost, don't we? The Spirit's poured out and now in this new covenant Jesus has accomplished everything the Old Testament promised and so The Word of God is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus because the law isn't merely written on stones of uh, tablets of stone. It's written on tablets of the human heart. It's written in on our hearts and the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of us and He's causing Father's love to be known to us so that family affections are stirred up so that we cry out, Abba, Father. He's causing Christ's image to be renewed in us as we behold the glory of Christ in the mirror of the Word. 2 Corinthians 3. We're transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit. And so we need to be in the Word of God because in the Word of God we see Jesus the Messiah. It's not that the Word of God is a a lucky charm, a rabbit's foot. It's not that rubbing it on yourself will make you wise. All that will do is give you static electricity. The reason we want to be in the Word, the reason we want to continue in it is because in the Word we see Christ. We see the glory and the sufficiency and the majesty of our Savior in the Word. We see how His perfections fit our weakness. 
We see how His solutions, His redemption, His accomplishments handle everything in us that is deficient. We were in bondage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and delivered us out of bondage. We were alienated and apart from God the Father. We were at war with Him. And Christ has reconciled us to God, bringing us near through His body by His blood. We had no hope. We were without Christ and without hope because we weren't even part of the Jewish people. And Christ has brought us near even though we were aliens and strangers and foreigners. What a glorious gospel it is. And it's not only in those big picture items, it's day to day. I sin. I get angry with my family. And I sin against them because I use my words as weapons. And Jesus is my high priest who's at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, completely cleansing me from the stain of my sin, First John tells me. He's interceding and he's my high priest. It's as if he leans over to God the Father and says, Father, I died for that sin. Would you forgive Ryan for using his words as weapons and being an idiot? I died for that sin. And I need to hear that. I need to remember because Satan loves to tell us that we've out-sinned the grace of God, that we've sinned one too many times. God's going to kick us out or maybe just stick us in the back 40 somewhere in heaven. And he doesn't want to be near us. We begin to believe we can't even come near and we can't even get together with the body of Christ because we got to clean ourselves up first. That's a lie from the devil. We could never clean ourselves up enough. Christ makes us clean. We cling to Him as we sang. And this is what we need to hear. This is what it means to be wise unto salvation. It's not only wise initially getting in when we're converted, it's wise as we live our lives, as we grow, as we become more like Jesus. We stop believing the lies of the enemy and we believe the promises of the gospel in Christ. Not only does it make us wise unto salvation, verse 16, it is useful. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, the word of God is, it's literally breathed out by God, theonoustos, Like I said before, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. But he says, because it's breathed out by God, because it's God's Word, it is useful. It's profitable. There's great benefit in it. So there's a reason for us to be in the Word is because there's great benefit in it. I'm not advocating pragmatism, but it's really good to know that if I'm in the Word, there is a benefit to it. It's profitable. Well, what's it profitable for? First, he says teaching. Scripture instructs. It's it's content. It's learning. It's teaching. It instructs us what the right thing is, what the good thing is, what the healthy thing is, what the wholesome thing is. It also is profitable for reproof. That is for refuting error. And then it's profitable for correction, getting back on the right track. And profitable for training in righteousness. That is producing righteous conduct, Christ-like character. So imagine it like this. You're on a road. And you're walking on a road and you get off the right path and you turn away. Scripture is able not only to first teach you what the right path is, but when you get away, it's able to reprove you and tell you you're going the wrong way. You're making really dumb decisions. 
really bad decisions that are going to have consequences and fill you with regret. And it doesn't just tell you you're going the wrong way. It actually corrects you and tells you how to get back on the right path. And then when you're on the path, it's not as if it it leaves you there. It actually produces righteous character. It produces it by producing the character of Christ in us. It trains us in righteousness. I'll give you an example. When I was When I was a teenager, I was a liar. That was the predominant sin of my life was I lied about everything. I wanted people to like me. See, back then we didn't have YouTube, so what I would do is I would watch a preview of a movie. And my dad didn't let me watch a lot of movies uh, back then, and, but I would watch these previews and then my friends at school, I would tell them, oh yeah, I saw that movie. There was a great part. I saw this part where, you know, whatever was in the preview acted like I saw the movie just so that, who knows, cause, so they would like me. I would go steal things out of the cabinet and lie about it, blame it on my siblings, eat all the brownies that were for lunches. What is it that changed me? What is it that changed me? I'll tell you what changed me. It was Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 15. Paul writes, rather, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, We're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Then he goes on to say, um, you know, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. But he says, verse, verse 20, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what I saw, I saw two things in this passage that changed me, actually broke me of my lying habit. The first one is that my sin affects others. He says that, you are to speak the truth in love in verse 15, to grow up in every way into him who's the head. But then he says in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. I, I, I began to see that my lying affected others. It wasn't just me. I used to think, ah, just it's just me. It only affects me and my reputation. Only if I get caught in it. But I began to see that it affected others. It affected my family. It affected my friends. It affected my church. And I began to see that all sin affects community. And if, we, if I want every part, and I'm one of the parts of the body of Christ working properly, I need to be speaking the truth in love. I need to be building up the, the community of faith. And, and the second thing I, I saw here is that this is not the way I learned Christ. I saw that it was tied to the Lord Jesus. I didn't learn Christ. He didn't tell me any lies when I heard the gospel. He told me the truth. And he spoke the truth in love. And this is how I learned Christ. And to put off my former self and put off the lying that's corrupt, to be renewed in my mind, to put on the new self, this is true righteousness and holiness. This is what it means to be in Christ and united to Him. And I realized that my sin affected others and that the Lord Jesus ultimately, when he spoke to me, he spoke to me the truth I needed to hear. He didn't lie and tell me what I wanted to hear. He told me the truth. 
He told me I was a sinner, that I deserved hell, that I had rebelled against God, but that he so loved me, he came to this earth to die for me as my substitute so I could be forgiven. And that all I need to do is by faith receive him and I could have eternal life and I could have a changed life. I didn't have to be a liar anymore seeking man's approval. I could actually tell the truth and I could just seek the approval of Christ and not worry about the approval of men. And at 17, 18, 19 years old, that was huge to me. That was my world. It was an amazing gift that I received from the word of God right here in this passage in Ephesians 4. And so it's useful. He also says in verse 17, it's, it's fruitful. See, do you want to overcome error and grow in truth? Do you want to overcome evil? Do you want to grow in holiness? Then you need to be in the word of God. It's profitable for all these things. And it's fruitful. Verse 17, back in 2 Timothy 3, it's fruitful. So that the man of God may be complete. That is, capable, proficient, adequate, have everything you need, equipped for every good work, he says. Now, in the context, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor and leader of the church, and so he, as a pastor and as a leader in the Word of God, is ready for the demands upon him. But by application, any Christian, knowing and learning from and trusting in these scriptures that are all sufficient, we will be ready for anything in life for any ministry that the Father desires that we have, we'll be ready for battle. Isn't it called the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And, and obviously, spiritual warfare, uh, too many people get their doctrine of spiritual warfare from poltergeist or ghostbusters or something, rather than the Word of God. Spiritual warfare, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, is in the battlefield of the mind. Paul says, we take every thought captive to Christ. That, that where spiritual warfare happens is in the battlefield of the mind. In fact, if you were to look at a list of things that are demonic in the New Testament, sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 7, false religion, false teaching, false Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10, bitterness, wrath, malice, Ephesians 4, foolishness and drunkenness, Ephesians 5, idle gossip and busybodying, 1 Timothy 5, lying, John 8, idolatry, 1 John 5. Those are the things that are demonic. Now, that's not the list I would think of based upon popular culture. After all, gossip and busybodying is not something that is very dramatic. That's just something everybody does, right? I mean, after all, we have a Facebook account. Spiritual warfare is in the battlefield of the mind. And what we need to do is put on Christ. And the way we put on Christ is we're in the Word because in the Word we see Christ. And, and we know that, that we can remember the promises and the sufficiency of Christ as we're in the Word. And so we can receive strength for the Christian life from two sources. Two sources. Here he says in this passage, first, by observing the lives of other Christians. Other men and women in the faith. Timothy was to remember Paul. To remember the divine strength that was evident in the midst of persecution. To continue in what he'd heard from his mother and his grandmother, he was to, to think about his mom and his grandma and say, I remember their Christian life and how they were devoted to the word and how it was a huge impact on me and a huge influence on me. 
And so we can receive strength by looking at other men and women in the faith and see their walk and see their faithfulness and it will encourage us. And the second source of strength is the Scriptures here, he says. It contains the explanation of God's salvation, verse 15. It contains an outline of doctrine and truth and supports that plan of salvation, verse 16. It provides warning to keep Christians from wandering afield from knowing God's, for knowing God's will, verse 16. And it points to an all-sufficient Christ. We will be equipped for every good work. We'll be complete. This is what Ephesians 2.10 says. Let's turn over there and I'll, I'll close with this passage. For we are His, that is the Father's workmanship. We are the Father's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to just think and meditate on this passage as you, as you go from here today. You, Christian, are the Father's handiwork. And when he uses that word poema, he uses this idea that you are, a, you are a work of art. You are a masterpiece. You are God's special creation that he set his intention upon. He, he thought about, he fashioned it. It isn't just an afterthought. You are not an afterthought in the mind of God. You're the Father's workmanship. And when He went about to fashion who you are and what you're going to do, He did it according to this verse, Christian, in Christ Jesus. It started before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1 says, He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world so that you'd be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined you to adoption as sons and daughters. And now He has prepared good works. The reason He's fashioned you the way He wants you, the reason you're here is so that you would go about doing good works. And He's going to make sure you do them. You know why? He prepared in advance these good works that you'd walk in them. It's like He's put the, the steps on the path and all you've got to do is step on them to do these good works. And the Word of God is what is able to make you wise for salvation. And the reason is because in the word you see Christ. You've been created in Christ. You live out of who you are in Christ. You live in the confidence of knowing that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He is ruling with the greatest authority as King. And He is ministering with the greatest ministry as High Priest to you today. And that means whatever you face today, whatever you face this week, you can do it to the glory of God. And it will be one of these good works that the Father has prepared in advance. I want you to love the Word of God. Not as a superstitious sort of lucky rabbit's foot. I don't want the Word of God to be a heavy burden on you like it is merely a duty to be obeyed. I want you to delight in and revel in and love the Word because in the Word you see Christ. And Christ is your love and He's your sufficiency. He's your treasure. So as we go from here, meditate on this reality that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, thank you for your word today, this time. I, such a simple message, Father. I know we've heard it so many times before, but it is so easy to delude ourselves into thinking that we need to Go to other places for wisdom. We need to seek other people's advice, other people's counsel rather than the Word of God. 
Why is it that the word of God is the last place I go to when I seek wisdom? I want to fire up my computer and search Google rather than go to your word. Father, forgive me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would encourage them. That as they are in your word, you would give them great courage and comfort and hope. And you would strengthen and empower them this week to walk in these good works that you've prepared for them. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.